1: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, December 16th, 2013. Now, this will be our final broadcast week prior to the Christmas break. We'll take a little bit of a you know of a break during the week of Christmas and I may be back like the day or two before New Year's I haven't decided yet. you know it's so we'll be, it's gonna be sporadic during the uh, last two holidays. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, and then compare what people are saying in God's name with an open Bible because the one thing you will find is over and over and over again, especially among the largest churches in the land. Um, and it doesn't matter if the land is the United States or Australia, Great Britain or whatever. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, seems like the least qualified people to actually preach and teach are the ones who are preaching and teaching and their unqualification ishness just made up a word there. Um, shows in spades, and as a result of it, large swaths of people are being deceived. And uh, what we do here is, well, we serve as a warning. Now, I, I gotta, I have to warn you in this sense. Listening to fighting for the faith is an acquired taste. What we do here, um, we do try to, well, how do I put this? We do try to mix some humor into what we're doing, but understand that. Everything that we try at least to put some humor into it, it's deadly serious, even though it's crazy and bizarre. And it's one of those things where, um, you know, from time to time I get, you know, I get an email from somebody who will say, you know, I would take your um, show more seriously if you did this or if you didn't do that. And see, the point is, is that I don't take false teaching or teachers seriously. I don't respect them. I don't grant them, um, you know, h- how do they put it, you know, courtesy or professional courtesy or anything like that. They're not theologians. They're not preachers. They're they're wolves and they are twisters of God's word. And so because we throw in a humorous element from time to time, if you're new to this program, listening to this program is the equivalent of a theological large bucket of ice water being splashed on your face. And The idea here is not to splash it on your face and go, (laughs) no, it's to splash it on your face so that you sit there and go, and, and you wake up because false doctrine is not a secondary issue in Christianity, okay? It always amazes me, always amazes me. That somebody will sit there and go, oh, you know, uh, that Chris Rose, bro, you know, he he gets all bent out of shape on secondary issues. It's, you know, it's a secondary issue as to whether or not, you know, you can preach about time management and stuff like that. Nah, nah, nah. You know, And this is the way they talk. No, no, no. Sound doctrine is primary. It's not secondary. It's not tertiary. It's primary. And if somebody is going to church and getting a steady diet of twisted words uh, from God's Word, they're not being rightly taught it, law and gospel are not being properly distinguished, Um, it, it ceases to be Anything even remotely approaching, you know, like a secondary issue becomes primary because this is the stuff that undermines the gospel. And if this is what you're feeding yourself on, um, the the spiritual equivalent of at best junk food, at worst cyanide, um, and in some cases a mixture of the two, um, this is this has devastating risk results um on the people listening and those people who've listened to fighting for the faith and have come out of these churches uh, where God's word is being twisted and have found churches where the pastors are actually pastors and they preach the word of God they rightly distinguish law and gospel and they preach the gospel to Christians who would have thunk um they'll they'll be the first to tell you that um that that what they've heard here was vital and important for helping to open their eyes to the fact that they were being deceived. And so they are so grateful now that they are in churches where they're being fed the truth, where they're being taught sound doctrine, where their pastors aren't playing light and loose and twisting God's word. This, this really is, we're, we're touching on ultimate things. And so because we live in a day that's politically incorrect, um, what I do is like really politically incorrect, but it's not politically incorrect for the sake of being politically incorrect. Um, You know, it's, you know, (laughs) You think of an example of what does it sound like to be politically incorrect for the sake of being politically incorrect? It's kind of like that statement that somebody put together years ago, you know, trying to find the ultimate politically incorrect statement. And I think it was like club the baby seals for Jesus or something like that. You know, you you see here something like that. You just, oh, you cringe. That's not what we're doing here. And. Listen, I get a lot of critical email and I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. In fact, what I find interesting is that when I go through my email and I, by the way, I do read my email. I, I want you all to know that if you send me an email, don't think I don't read it. I don't have the ability to respond to all of it. Um, I, it's just physically impossible for me to do that. Um, but I do read my emails. So if you send me an email and, you know, you have something critical to say, I actually read it, you know, and I I don't run away from it or anything like that. So if you're thinking, you know, I feel like when I send Chris an email, it goes into the abyss. Yeah, I understand that because um, when you hit the send button, it ends up in my email box and then I read it. And I some emails I mean, if you ever get a response from me, that's kind of like a lightning strike. probably the best way to put it and we haven't been reading a lot of emails on air it's just because of you know what I believe is the importance of actually dealing with some of the bigger issues. But you know, from time to time, if if a super critical question comes up that touches on something that we're covering here on the program, I will uh, try to weave those emails in. Of course, uh, the occasional Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley emails; those uh, those always rise to the top because he always has some salient things to add to the the program. But all of that being said, um, if you were to if you were to look at my emails, there's a fascinating history. Okay. In my critical emails, the critical emails begin usually with these words. I think you're the most arrogant, conceited, hateful, spiteful, weasel of a man kind of thing, you know, and, 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 you know, I I get a lot of that, okay, all right, no, no problem, I get it, you know, I I understand I've hit a nerve and some of the things I said, or maybe the way I said it, you know, has set you off, that's not a bad spot to be in, by the way, okay, Uh, at least I got you thinking, okay, but then I got a whole other set of emails, and they usually start like this, I used to think that you were the most conceited, hateful, spiteful, weasel of a man, but then I started I started actually looking up the Bible verses to prove you wrong and found that what you were saying to me was true. Yeah, that so, and I get a lot of those emails. And it seems like more and more and more I get those emails from people. I get those, I get messages from people on Facebook thanking me. And and a lot of you know I remember a few years ago I received an email from a gentleman who is who is now a Bible translator out in you know West Africa, you know. And, uh, it, 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 and it was really fascinating. And, you know, his email ex- to me started with, you and I have had many discussions and many debates and many arguments. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> clearly uh, my, my program provided, a, you know, he decided to argue with me, which is great. If what I'm saying to you has got you angry, oh, good, good. You know, that's what happens when the theological cold bucket of water, ice water, ends up in your face. You might get angry. Stay with it, though. Stay with it. okay. If you're angry, here's my challenge to you. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong from God's Word. Show me from God's Word where what I am saying to you is not true. Show me from God's Word that these sermons that I review, this doctrine that I'm reviewing, that this is actually what God's Word says. You know, these false teachers are, are saying. You know, and you'll see that what I'm telling you is the truth. What I'm speaking to you Is true. And keep in mind, like I said, I will not show professional courtesy to a false teacher. I can't do it. I can't do it. In fact, there's even biblical precedent not to do it. Now, let me give you an example. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel fell into idolatry, and one of the things they did is they worshipped a false god. Okay, One of the false, and there were many false gods that they worshipped, but one in particular, um, you will read it in your Bible whenever you come across the word Molech. Okay, Now, if you're familiar with the, the deity, false god, uh, Molech, Molech, you know, the, the, the cult of Molech included child sacrifice, uh the, the 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 large statue of molech you know they would heat the hands up of this this idol and then they would take infants and and put them into the hands once they were like burning red and and sacrifice their children to the god molech but you, you got to understand something every time you say the word molech you you are dissing That God. You're refusing to show professional courtesy to that false deity. And you're saying, really? Why? Isn't that his name? No. His name in the ancient world, by his followers, was Melech. Melech means king. Mm -hmm. Melech means king. Molech is the Hebrew word for shame. And so even the Hebrews refused to show professional courtesy to the false god Melek by naming him Melek. They always would refer to him as Molech. And you can see how that exchange would probably go, right? You know, somebody who's a worshiper of and You say, oh, yeah, you worship that god, Molech. It's Melech. Yeah, Molech, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe that you are so evil and wicked that you would sacrifice your children to Molech. It's Melech, you fool. Stop doing that. No, it's not. It's not Melch. It's Molech. It is absolutely shameful. You see how, the, yeah, how it goes. So keep in mind, <clears throat> as a rule, as a policy, I do not show professional courtesy to false teachers. That can be off-putting, but work through it. Because if you take the time to actually compare what I'm saying, God's word says, to what God's word says, you'll see that what I'm telling you is the truth. And my warnings really are to open your eyes and save you. That's... The idea. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I probably have got too much that I, I'm going to try to get to today, so I don't think I'm going to get to all of this. But um, in fact, it, the hard part for today's program was deciding on an order for the different things that we're going to be talking about. Now, um, uh, Paula Coyle actually put a link up on my Facebook wall today that I thought was interesting. Uh, We've been talking a lot lately about the evangelical industrial complex and the rise of celebrity pastors. Well, it turns out um, that the Out of Ur blog, which I think is associated with uh, Christianity Today, yeah, it is, I'm looking at their website, uh, back in February of 2012, put out an article called The Evangelical Industrial Complex and the Rise of Celebrity Pastors. No joke. It, they did. And so I'm going to actually end up uh, uh, reading this. In fact, we're probably going to lead off with that. Um, and then we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got a Stephen Furtick update and a Rick Warren update. Um, now, last week, I wanted to get to this Rick Warren thing. We're going to have a Rick Warren twin spin, if you would. And uh, what we will do is, um, is there are two things I want to talk about uh, regarding Rick Warren. Number one is what is Rick Warren's presupposition when it comes to what constitutes a, quote, healthy church? Um, it, that's, there's a primary premise, if you would, behind purpose drivenism, and yes, I'm trying to do an alliteration here. Um, there is a primary pre- premise of purpose drivenism that I think needs to be challenged, and you'll hear it in this, you know, this brief little soundbite that I'm going to play for you uh, from a recent video posted. Uh, re, uh, well, uh, not too long ago, a uh, posted video uh, with Rick Warren. And I think uh, Rick Blaney is the guy who's um, interviewing him. We'll, we'll, we'll get that all right when we get to the, the post. So we'll, so we'll take a look at that. And then we'll also listen to uh, audio from Rick Warren's latest appearance um, on television. He was on the Dr. Oz program shilling the, um, the Daniel Plan book. And as much as I am so over the Daniel Plan, because that's like so 2012, uh, they've made it into a book. Zondervan has, covered, uh, has published it. So we're going to take a look at what he said there, because not only are we going to deal with a twisting of God's word, the Daniel Plan has absolutely nothing to do with the book of Daniel. Like zero, zilch, nada, you know, nunca nadia, nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the book of Daniel. And uh, what Rick Warren said there is rather fascinating we'll take a look and pick that apart but also there's a community aspect to this um and if you have not already heard my lecture from may of 2012 uh, go back to the May 11th, 2012 episode of Fighting for the Faith. There was a lecture posted there entitled Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the community, which I think you should probably listen to so that you can understand the the, uh, the gist of uh, what it is that Rick Warren was saying there. So we're going to go ahead and dive into the program proper. And since we're going to start off with a news story, you know, albeit from like February of 2012, it's like super important uh, as of today, especially in light of the Mark Driscoll. Uh Fiasco um, and now, as best as I know, still not a peep from Mark Driscoll, not a word uh, my question is, does a man not have a conscience? I mean, how can he get up uh yesterday on Sunday morning and preach a sermon and just act like nothing 's happening i that 's just beyond me, but anyway, so we let 's uh, go ahead and do this right so here 's our <clears throat> when we read up news story update music here here 's what we play here. From the Out of Ur blog, um, which is associated with Christianity Today, uh, Sky Jathani. The headline reads: "The Evangelical Industrial Complex and the Rise of Celebrity Pastors." Okay, so a uh, Sky uh, Jathani writes, and this is actually a great um, article. So um, keep in mind the time reference here: February 2012. So this is more th- you know, this is more than a year old. This is almost a two-year-old article. Uh, But uh, Sky writes, uh, last week, Bob Hyatt wrote about the temptations created by the celebrity pastor culture we live in and the harm it causes to our souls. By the way, there's a link to that. Uh, He's not the only one talking about the issue. Both Relevant Magazine and the Together for the Gospel Conference are talking about it. The issue I'm referring to is celebrity pastors. Rachel Held Evans' recent article in Relevant (sighs) – <clears throat> Sorry, I, I apologize that we had to favorably mention Rachel Held Evans. Uh, she's an emergent. Uh, she's, she plays for Team Emergent, you know. Um, so, But the fact that she brought this up, okay, we'll, we'll just at this point just note the fact that Rachel Held Evans here spoke about this. She wrote an article for Relevant Magazine called When Jesus Meets TMZ, uh, seeks to explain the rise of celebrity pastors with evangelicalism. And uh, Evans' article does a good job of outlining our corrupt human tendency to make our leaders into idols, a temptation evident from Christianity's earliest days and which has marked every era of the church uh, every era of the church before Osteen, Warren, and Driscoll, there were uh, Moody, Spurgeon, and Whitfield. Celebrity pastors are not new. Now I got to take an issue here. Although this is, I'm bringing this up to point out the fact that people have been talking about this for a while. Okay, um, I would not say that Spurgeon and Whitfield are celebrity pastors. And what I would say is, is that you have to make a distinction. You must make a distinction between somebody who's famous and a celebrity there are they those two are very different okay Many people can be famous for many different things. But celebrity in our current cultural context is something contrived. It's something, it's something crafted. It has to do with being savvy with marketing and promoting yourself and things like that. Whereas the reason why S- uh, Spurgeon is known today is not because he was out there trying to carefully craft a public image for himself in the media. The reason why Spurgeon is remembered today is specifically due to the fact that the, the guy could preach – and, uh, and, you know, his his sermons were, I mean, in your face, bold proclamations of the truth. And many of the things that he said, I mean, even though I'm a confessional Lutheran, I say amen to on Spurgeon. He had a good way of of working sentences and, you know, and really making his points in a way that were cogent to the point and had a punch to them. And uh, there's a reason why people read Spurgeon's sermons to this day, and it's not because he was a celebrity pastor. It's because he was a gifted preacher. There's a difference, okay? Not all celebrity pastors—in fact, I would argue most celebrity pastors are not gifted preachers, which kind of begs the question then— why are they celebrity pastors? Well, there's there's more to this. Let me continue reading. Um, but what is new is the number of celebrity pastors and the speed with which they are being quote created or coronated. And I think that's a great way to put it. Celebrity pastors are created. They're contriven- They're contrivances. Um, you know, they they are the the cre- Think of it like you know, back in the '90s when they had those boy bands. Ugh. <sighs> Sorry, <clears throat> every just thinking about it just gives me the just, uh, gives you know makes me to uh, throw up. Anyway, so celebrity pastors are to preaching as the as uh, '90s boy bands are to music. You, you get what I'm saying there. We continue. So this was uh, this is what Evans' article uh, doesn't address. Every generation has a handful of well-known pastors, but why? Uh, but why are there now so many? What explains the creation of an entire celebrity class within the evangelical world? Yes, our human proclivity for leadership, uh, leader worship, is as potent as ever. But there is more than a spiritual or psychological reason behind the rise of today's pastoral uh, pantheon. Great. Phrase, by the way, pastoral pantheon. There is a systematic economic force at work as well, and what I call the evangelical industrial complex. So, this is going back to February of 2012. Uh, first, a little background. In 1961, uh, in President Eisenhower's farewell address to the nation, he warned about the unintended effects of what he dubbed the military. Industrial complex. Following World War II, for the first time in American history, a permanent arms industry was created to manufacture weapons, tanks, warplanes, etc. This industry uh, employed millions of Americans, and Eisenhower feared its influence over the government and its need for armed conflict in order to grow would prove damaging to the country. He recognized the potential for a self sustaining cycle of one, a growing arms industry, two, supplying an expanding military, three, resulting in more armed conflict and fewer resources for domestic needs like education and infrastructure. It's worth remembering that this warning was coming from a Republican, an Army General, a war hero, not a Democrat or an anti-war activist. Many now consider Eisenhower's warning prophetic given the exponential growth in military spending and wars over the last 50 years. You can watch the segment below. So, actually put the YouTube uh, video of Eisenhower's speech. I'm not going to play it, but we continue. So, what does Eisenhower and the military have to do with celebrity pastors? Well, Just as America's militarism for the last half century is uh, partially the result of systematic economic forces, so is the rise of the present clergy celebrity class. There is an evangelical industrial complex that helps create and then relies upon the existence of celebrity pastors. Have you ever wondered why you don't see pastors from small or medium-sized churches on the main stage at big conferences? Great question. Um, Or why most of the best-selling Christian authors are mega-church leaders? Here's one possibility. uh, The one people like to believe. The most godly, intelligent, and gifted leaders naturally attract large followings, so they naturally are going to have large churches, and their ideas are so great, and their writing is so sharp that publishers pick their book proposals, and the books strike a nerve with so many people, they naturally become bestsellers, and these leaders are therefore the obvious choice to speak at the biggest conferences. As a result, they find themselves quite naturally becoming popular, even rising to a celebrity status. Is this possible? Yes. Does it happen? Sometimes. Is this the norm? I don't think so. Here's the other possibility. Through any number of methods, powerful gifting, shrewd marketing, dumb luck, a pastor leads a congregation to megachurch status. Publishers eager for a guaranteed sales win offer the megachurch pastor a book deal, knowing that if only a third of the pastor's own congregation buys a copy, it's still a profitable deal. The book is published on the basis of the leader's market platform, not necessarily the strength of his ideas or the book's quality. Sometimes the pastor will actually write the book, and other times a ghostwriter hired by the publisher will do the hard work of transforming his sermon notes into 100 pages with something resembling a coherent idea. (laughs) Notice, all the way back in February of 2012, Sky here picked up on the ghost writing angle. Wanting to maximize the return on their investment, the publisher will then promote the pastor at the publisher-sponsored ministry conference or other events. As a result of the pastor's own megachurch customer base and the publisher's conference Platform, The book becomes a bestseller, or if if that doesn't work, sometimes sugar daddies purchase thousands of copies of the book to literally buy the pastor onto the bestsellers list where the perception of popularity results in more sales. Can you say Stephen Furtick here? That's exactly what happened regarding the book Greater, which is a completely miserably bad book. And he says, yes, it happens. Not a lot, but it does happen. And then the story continues. Sky then says this market driven cycle of mega churches conferences and publishers results in an echo chamber where the same voices espousing the same values create an atmosphere where ministry success becomes equated with audience aggregation. Thankfully, there are outliers like the Epic Fail Conference and the Q Gathering that defy those trends by platforming important non-celebrity voices. But there's a reason why you, you won't see a flashy conference for the house church movement. And there's a, a reason why a brilliant, godly, wise 50-year-old Pastor with a gift for communicating, carrying a timely message and leading a church of 200 in Montana is highly unlikely to get a publishing contract. And even if he does, good luck getting this, the stage at a conference or any marketing energy from the publisher. Their effort will be poured into the handful of megachurch pastors in their lineup whose book sales pay their salaries. It is exceedingly difficult to break into the club without a large customer base, a.k.a. a megachurch. Are the publishers evil for focusing on sales potential more than quality? Of course not. Now, this is, I would say, of course they are. Of course they are. Yet the reason why is because they're compromising the truth. For the sake of profit, and no Christian publisher should ever be doing that. So I disagree with Sky here, but we continue. They're businesses that have to sustain themselves. They are simply reacting to the realities of the market, but no Christian publishers are not to do that. But sometimes they fail to see how they also shape the market by their decisions. And I am I saying that all megachurch pastors' books are subpar? Not at all. Some of them are my friends. I've And I've deeply appreciated their writings. David Gibbons and Tim Keller immediately come to mind. I wouldn't recommend either of them, especially Keller. Uh, But we mustn't be naive. The system is rigged to favor a writer-slash-speaker's market platform rather than his or her content, maturity, or message. Yes, there are exceptions, but they generally prove the rule, and we have all been to ministry conferences where we've scratched our heads wondering why that Yahoo is on the platform. Oh, yeah, he's got a big church and a book to sell, just like the guy before him and the one before him. It's a system that rewards sizzle whether or not there's any stake. Consider the scale of the evangelical industrial complex that survives by uh, perpetuating the system. The Christian Booksellers Association, representing 1,700 Christian stores, sells $4.63 billion worth of merchandise a year, and that doesn't count retailers like Amazon and Walmart. Some estimate the total evangelical market to be over $7 billion a year. Evangelicalism is a very, very large business— That's why I call it an industrial complex, and this massive market has grown in conjunction with the rise of megachurches since the 1970s. They rely upon and perpetuate each other. Megachurch leaders offer publishers pre-existing customer bases, their own congregations, and publishers make megachurch pastors into celebrities to perpetuate and expand their bottom lines. As a result, evangelicalism is not a meritocracy where talent, gifting, character, or wisdom result in a broadening influence. It is an aristocracy where simply having a platform entitles you to ever-increasing influence, regardless of your talent, gifting, character or wisdom. So as more people begin discussing and worrying about the existence of a celebrity pastor class, we need to see beyond our human tendency to idolize leaders or even uh, the historical fact that celebrity preachers have always existed. Today, it isn't simply Christians who are creating celebrity pastors, it's the Christian market. We live in a new age where consumerism and mega congregations have resulted in a self perpetuating evangelical industrial complex that not only creates but also depends upon a growing number of celebrity pastors. Should we be concerned? Yes. But at least they're not building nukes. <laughs> Well, actually, I would disagree here. Yes, we should be concerned because here's the deal. A nuclear bomb can only kill your body. A nuclear bomb of false doctrine will send you to hell. You see the difference? Yeah, nukes are not nearly as dangerous as false doctrine, so I disagree with Sky here. But we continue. And what are we to do about it? Avoid conferences or popular books? Well, no, not necessarily. But we do need to be discerning and recognize that popularity does not equal maturity and a wide audience does not equal wisdom. Don't let the publishers or conference organizers determine what's right for you and your community. Now, see, this is where I would disagree again. Um, yeah, he's being laissez-faire regarding you know all of this. I should say, yeah avoid the popular books avoid the conferences and warn your uh, warn your friends about them you know if we've covered it here at fighting for the faith and done a review on it or the pastor and that pastor is somebody who is chronically and habitually twisting and mangling God's word yeah you need to avoid those conferences and avoid those popular books and and warn other people so that they don't end up in hell you know, so, I, you know, completely different conclusion that uh, Sky comes to. But worth noting, I think Sky makes some very important and salient points regarding the evangelical industrial complex. What do you think? All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, Stephen Furtick update. This is kind of creepy, what we'll be updating you on. And then a, uh, a kind of an extended uh, Rick Warren update regarding the Daniel Plan and what he considers to be healthy churches. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Our pirate signal into the matrix created by the evangelical industrial complex. You're listening to Fighting the Fan.
2: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: let's face it it's a visual age and the old bible is impractical and irrelevant but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth if you're tired of all those words like atonement sin justification and all that deep stuff about god look no further Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide.
1: holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off of the cheapo airs already low prices write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio so again com forward slash cheap write down the promo code Code, click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs.
2: Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yeah Yay! I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends over long. Ow. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At Think Geek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio.
1: listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with the schlocky, bad doctrinal books put out by megachurch pastors and the evangelical industrial complex. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says, join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. If you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it and uh, just a reminder we are still in the middle of our Christmas bake sale if you have not uh, taken a look at our bake sale and uh, and, uh, perused or even purchased some of the items created by my mother-in-law that's right my mother-in-law helps us Raise the funds that we need to uh, broadcast here at Fighting for the Faith. Hey, listen, we we run a tight ship here. You you know you know what I'm saying here. So um you know, visit fightingforthefaith.com when you get there, look at the top of the page, there's you'll see the word bake sale. Click on that and you can uh, take a look at uh, what we're offering this year to uh, as our bake sale items to help us make budget for 2013. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we have a Stephen Furtick update, which requires us to do this. <music>
4: You were a man of God Your hands strategically cut To the new style The Beaver was big and hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed You'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? You me several years ago when I was just a baby sheep. Well, you told me But you twisted up the Bible So no one else had said a peep I was afraid Then I heard the real gospel Heard the real gospel And you're so vain You probably think the Bible's about you You're so vain I bet you think the Bible's about you don't
1: you, don't you don't you so um what what could you do if you were a celebrity mega church pastor like Stephen Furtick who just can't stand it when people leave the worship experience early like during your sermon or um or they're texting on their phone or uh, yes or falling asleep well, Yeah, you know, what you know What can an enterprising celebrity pastor, well, let me kill the music here. What can an enterprising celebrity pastor like Stephen Furtick do to convince people to stop messing up the worship experience? Answer put together a short little promotional video with some humor in it, including uh, Vitor uh, Belfort, the uh, ultimate fighter, um, beating up and whipping into shape. Uh, offenders of the said rules there at at <clears throat> at Elevation Church. Now, although this is their attempt at humor, the whole premise behind it is really creepy. <clears throat> here, listen in. You won't hear Stephen Furtick, but this was produced by Elevation. Here we go. I'm Larry Huback, the creative pastor here at Elevation Church. And pa- what is a creative pastor? <clears throat> Sorry, I just you know I see this. Here we got Larry, uh, who but. Act, whatever his name is. Um he and it's it says he's the creative pastor. What is a creative pastor? I know what a pastor is, okay? And I know what the uh the responsibilities of people who hold the office of pastor are. Um so does Larry does he um preach the word? Does he administer the Lord's Supper? I mean, does he baptize? I mean, what what, what are his responsibilities as creative pastor? What is that? <clears throat>
5: we continue. Stephen has asked our team to do our best to present the gospel as creatively as possible every week. I'd say it's going pretty well. However, we are running into some issues, some small issues, but they're happening right here in the main worship experience. Same auditorium that you're sitting in right now. We're seeing people falling asleep, seeing people coming in a little bit late, scooching out early before the end of the experience, seeing people playing on their phones, and they're saying, hey, I'm just looking at my Bible app. That's funny. I didn't know there was an ESPN translation, but that's okay. That's okay. We're fine. Whatever. It's okay.
1: No, it's not. See, this is can't see. Although they're trying to play this off as funny and oh, it's okay, they're not okay with this. I, I remember the news story a few years back where um, uh, a kid with uh, cerebral palsy was literally, um, you know, he and his mother were ushered out of Elevation Church because uh, the cerebral palsy kid was creating a distraction during the worship experience. And yeah, you, 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 if you don't remember that, look it up. You can find it still online. So, um, you know, so here we've got this supposedly funny video, but um, it's sending a clear message. Don't come in late. Don't leave early. Don't fall asleep. Don't be looking at your phone when Pastor Stevens preaching and stuff like that. That's kind of the message here. And we continue, though, but just listen in. We
5: are rolling out a new program, something that's going to help us develop a distraction-free environment. We've been beta testing it for just a few months now. And I think you're really going to like it.
1: And the enemy will erect walls, but praise will lift your perspective to see past the wall and see into the promise. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. So they're showing the audience rather than Stephen Furtick. He's preaching, but you can't see him. And they just showed this kid who's clearly um, been up late studying for finals and uh, decided to faithfully go to his uh, celebrity pastor megachurch. <clears throat> promoted by the evangelical industrial complex and of course he gets there and he's clearly spent and wouldn't you know it in the middle of Stephen furtick's sermon this kid has dun 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 dozed off yeah it's this is not good i mean this is clearly a bad sign uh, so let's find out what happens to this kid who dozed off during furtick's sermon
3: your progress is always a. Yeah.
1: That's right. Security has escorted and literally physically took him, taken him out of the church. Now there's a guy who's uh, looking at his watch, he's looking nervous like he's got to leave. Isn't and now he's walking out. Uh-oh, he's in trouble. We'll probably put a ba- black bag on his head for that. Yep, there they go. They've got him. And now there's a guy sitting there with his iPhone, and it looks like he's looking at the sports score. You got a big battle, big wall. you never been through a walled city before. And there goes security. Whoa, they just took his iPhone out of his hand. And now they're physically taking him out of the church, throwing him into a van. He and the other guys all have black... Um, handkerchiefs over their eyes are blindfolded and they just some people would say we're
5: being a little overly aggressive we would just say we're being creative you see we had a problem so we brought a specialist in to help us get it right somebody who's got a lot of experience dealing with situations like this somebody who was like an enforcer like a values enforcer and we've seen incredible results prolonged attention span a decrease in cell phone dependency a heightened sense of bladder control i'd say it's working i'd say our specialist is a, a phenom
1: And the men are taking off their blindfolds, and they are now in a cage uh, arena.
6: Welcome to Vitor's house. I crush men's bones.
1: Yeah, now for the uh, mandatory fighting montage with Vitor, you know, crushing men's bones for real in real fights. Yeah, That's—I mean—that's just brutal. Why is this being shown on a church video? Yeah, and so apparently the message is this is what Vitor is going to do to you if you um, fall asleep, leave early, or look at the sports scores on your cell phone, etc. And you know, uh, distract the worship experience. You know how it feels to break man's bone. Oh! Now it's you. It's your time. No, 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 no.
6: Cry now. I can't help it. This is what I do. Focus. You in the arena, group, Come. You gotta come. No gi. No gi. No
1: phone. Yeah, and so now we've got Vitor just literally
4: <clears throat>
1: assaulting these uh, experience distractors church no
6: leave early church you like to sleep at church no okay you're about to sleep now
1: you just put a sleeper hold on the kid who fell asleep i hope you guys learned the lesson
6: today you guys learned the lesson today hey i'm talking to you guys you guys learned the lesson yeah, yeah
5: so you better watch yourself because you're about to be next so vitor might be a little unorthodox yeah sure but i think we got something here i think we're on the right track
1: Yeah, so there you go. Again, it's just really, really creepy. Why is it creepy? Because this is clearly a message that they want to send. Don't distract the worship experience. Don't fall asleep. Don't leave early. Don't check the sports scores while Stephen Furtick is, you know, preaching. Don't, don't, yeah, so they want a distraction-free worship experience. And although this was their attempt to humorously convey the message... Man, um, this just um, is ultimately, ultimately really, really, really creepy to me. And, uh, I, again, tells you kind of the the character and culture there at Elevation Church. <clears throat> Moving along. Time for a purpose update. I don't know how I know. That's right. I don't know where I'm going to look, but I'm going to find my purpose. Got to find out.
5: Don't want to wait. Got to make sure that my life will be great.
1: Got to find my purpose before, before it's too late. <laughs> That's right. That's our Rick Warren uh, purpose-driven update music. Now, I'm going to play two um, two segments for you. First is going to be, uh, it, it, the the interview is with a guy by the name of Justin Blaney, and uh, he's with Innovate for Jesus, uh, the YouTube channel Innovate for Jesus. And I want you to hear in this interview what Rick Warren assumes equals, quote, a healthy church, okay? And, uh, and then from there, we will go into, uh, you know his appearance on the Doctor Oz program to shill for his latest book from the Evangelical Industrial Complex called the Daniel Plan, and you know having read that article from you know February 2012 on the Evangelical Industrial Complex, that's all the Daniel Plan is. It is ju- the, why is it being put out there? Oh well, because Rick Warren is a mega church pastor who pastors pastors, and and I mean he's the guy who wrote the Purpose Driven Life. So Zondervan knows they can sell a ton. One of these spiritual weight loss books authored by a man who clearly needs to shed a few more pounds. But uh, before we get to that, let's listen in as um, Rick Warren is interviewed by Justin Blaney. We'll hear uh, what he has to say about, quote, healthy churches and listen to his definition. Listen, and here we go.
3: Did you come to Saddleback, or did you start it? What's the background there? 1980, I moved from Texas to start Saddleback Church. I was 25 years old. Um, I had one member, my wife. I preached the first sermon. She said it was too long. It's been downhill ever since. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. So you started Saddleback. Saddleback Church has grown. Originally, you had a certain vision for the church. How has that changed over the years as you've grown? When I was in seminary, I decided to do a study of what is it that makes a church healthy.
1: Okay, so you decided to do a survey, a study. What makes a church healthy? So, I mean, where would you go to find out what makes a church healthy? You, you answer, you go to, quote, healthy churches. Well, what does a healthy church look like?
3: Hmm. Listen in. And so I wrote to the 100 largest churches in the United States at, personally and just did an own study on it. And one of the- mm-hmm.
1: So he wrote to the 100 largest churches in the United States. So here's my question for you. Would you define a large megachurch as a, quote, healthy church? Why is it that a megachurch, a large church, is supposed to be healthy? Um yeah, what are you using for your metrics to determine that it's healthy? Just because it's large doesn't mean the growth is positive or healthy growth. It could be cancerous growth. And what I mean by that is that over and over again here at Fighting for the Faith, we review sermons from the largest churches in the United States and around the world. And what we find from the, what's being taught from the pulpit is absolute, uh, again, you know, best-case scenario, it's junk food. Worst-case scenario, scenario, it's cyanide. And in some cases, it's a mixture of the two. That does that type of preaching a healthy church does not make, and it doesn't matter how many people show up to uh, to hear false doctrine. It's still false doctrine, and if you get ten thousand people, you know, crammed into a building to hear a a Bible twister twist God's word and teach false doctrine, that is not a healthy church. That's a a a synagogue de satana, a, a synagogue of Satan. You know that biblical term lingo there. So yeah, I just wanted you to hear that. I mean, so what does Rick Warren think? You know, automatically, if it's a large church, it's a healthy church. Bah, humbug! To borrow the uh, <clears throat> Christmas time uh, nomenclature here, uh, but uh, no, that that is not what makes a healthy church. So uh, you know, already we've got a problem. If his assumption is that if it's a large church, it's a healthy church, we've got a problem. And and by the way, this is kind of weird for because uh, Rick Warren, you know, back in the day when he was starting Saddleback, um. You know, Saddleback is supposedly officially affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And I don't think Baptists would consider a large Methodist church to necessarily be a healthy church. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's weird. So regardless of doctrine, regardless of creed, regardless of whether or not they're teaching the word of faith heresy, regardless of whether they're Episcopal or whatever, it doesn't matter. As long as they're large, they're healthy. Boy, that tells you what he thinks about theology and doctrine, doesn't it? I think it should tell you a lot. But next example of what it is that Rick Warren thinks about doctrine and theology, let's take a listen to his appearance last week on the Daniel Plan. He's shilling for the new book, The Daniel Plan Book. And, you know, we've done this to death, but we're going to have to do it a little bit more. Here's uh, Rick Warren's appearance with Dr. Oz. Here we go.
6: The most important part of the Daniel plan to lose weight, the spirit. So we've talked about diets a lot in the show. You all know that. This is the first show we have ever done that includes God or a higher being mm. as part of the plan. So I want to, Patrick.
1: Yeah, so apparently God or a higher being can help you with your weight loss. Th- th- is it me or does it sound like using God, you know, as a means to an end?
6: to come Help us with this. Sure. Why is God an important part of a weight loss program? How does that work?
3: Yeah, well, I think there are two or three reasons. First, uh, he gives us the grace to start over. He,
1: he gives us the grace to start over. Boy, that sounds like the gospel, but so far from it. No, God doesn't give us the grace to start over. He gives us the grace to forgive all of our sins. Big difference.
3: Okay. How many of you have ever been on a diet that you didn't stay on? Yeah. Everybody. Okay. Right. Everybody. All right. <laughs> That's right. And, and so you feel you feel bad about it, you feel guilty about it. This is not guilt driven, it's not fear driven, it's faith driven.
1: Faith in what? Faith in who? For what?
3: And God gives us the grace to start over. It's like when my child running the race stumbles in the race. I don't say, "Oh, you bad kid," I say, "Get up! I know you can do it. You can keep going." So
1: we're talking about the. You know, let's let's just speak it out here, okay? Uh, there are a lot of people who are overweight because of the sin of gluttony. And God yeah, just is there cheering them on, going, come on, I know you've fallen down. I know you can get up. What was Jesus hanging on the cross then for? You understand what I'm saying? And this is the way God says us: I know you can do it. Get up again. I, I know you can do it. Get up again. What passage of the Bible says that?
3: And, and keep going. So he gives us grace. Then he gives us motivation. So
1: grace is God saying, get up, I know you can do it this time. That's not grace. Now, uh, I mean, talk about turning Jesus into a life coach. I mean, this is the quintessential example of that.
3: As a pastor, see, I believe God made my body. Jesus prayed for my body. God's spirit lives in my body. Then I better take care of it. We've all heard the phrase, your body is the temple of God. We've all heard that phrase. Well, then I better give him a clean temple. And then he gives me the power to keep going. There's a big difference between willpower and God power. Most diets don't work because they're totally based on willpower. They're based on trying, not trusting. Then
1: how do you explain all of the contestants on The um, the, the, uh, the Biggest Loser over their, what, 14, 15 seasons they've been on the air? How did those people do it? Because not all of them were Christians. I mean, the fact that a lot of the contestants on The Biggest Loser were not only not Christian, I mean, they they were different religions or complete atheist or other things like that. How did they do it without God power?
6: Give that extra little umph. Well stated. Well stated. Yeah, go ahead and applaud. I know that the culture. (laughs) Do you believe that weight loss, like just about any other endeavor, is intricately related to the support
1: we have? In your case, that support group is called the Congregation.
3: Absolutely. And and anybody could. So
1: now we've got God, power and community. Again, if you have not heard my lecture on resistance is fuel, you'll be assimilated into the community. You need to hear it. Uh, May 11th, 2012 episode of Fighting for the Faith. Will we continue?
3: Start a Daniel Plan group. You just need to get two or three people. What we've discovered is that you don't. God wired us that we don't get well on our own. We need each other. Uh, I need you, you need me, we're better together. In the Bible, there's a phrase called one another. It's used 57 times.
1: Yeah, and how many times does the phrase one another in the Bible refer to those who are seeking to lose weight?
3: Hmm. It says love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, support one another, help one another. This is the mutual ministry of encouragement. And this is the difference than willpower. If I, uh, there are two ways to change. If, I, if I've got a, a boat and it's heading north on a, on a lake and the, and the autopilot says head north, I got two ways to change it. Grab the steering wheel, force it to go the opposite way and go south. The whole time I'm under tension because I'm, by willpower, forcing the boat to go not where it actually wants to go. And eventually what's going to happen is I'm going to let go of the steering wheel and I'm going to start smoking again. I'm going to go off the diet. I'm going to go back to my bad relationships. I'm going to go back to all these bad habits. The more long-term way to change anything in life, whether it's food, fitness, or anything else. Yeah,
1: notice here that he's going a lot into the community aspect of it. Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with having a support group of people to help you lose weight. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact... Uh, You know, I am a owner of a Nike fuel band and I use the Nike running app and I have listeners who I compete with on the Nike uh, fuel website in both uh, distance on my running every uh, every week as well as the total number of um, Nike fuel points that I burn. And it definitely helps. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But again, here's the issue. We're dealing with a weight loss book that claims to have the faith factor all dialed in. And Rick Warren talks about, oh, it's important that you have God power. And then he mentions that. No, no sooner does he mention that. Now we're on to the, the community aspect of it. And he's taken a lot longer to explain that point than explaining how the whole God power faith factor thing plays into your weight loss. Why? Because there isn't a single biblical passage that tells you to use God in this way, not one. And Rick Warren knows that that's not going to hang up, hold up under scrutiny. So he's switching to something that's a lot easier to talk about. You know, the the importance of having a, a group, an accountability group, a community to help you out here. Mm-hmm. The, again, this just is yeah, – this is horrible. And my question is this. If Rick Warren lived 100 years ago, which Christian publisher would want to publish his books? Which Christian publisher would be willing – to stake their reputation on publishing a book called the Daniel Plan, which claims to have some kind of connection to uh, the Book of Daniel, as if it's teaching us some kind of diet plan that we need to employ in our lives so that we can lose weight. There wasn't there wasn't a Christian publisher a hundred years ago who would have touched this with a ten foot pole. And any you know, if Rick Warren back then had a you know approached them and say I've got this great idea for a book. Um, They probably would have thrown him physically out of the building, um, you know, for daring to, you know, wanting to publish a book in this way that would make merchandise of God's people while twisting God's words so badly. But we continue.
3: Is to change the autopilot. God specializes in that.
1: So God specializes in changing autopilots. Chapter and verse for that, please.
3: He helps change our character from the inside. The Bible calls it being renewed in your mind.
1: Yeah, and that's through the means of God's word. You kind of left that important part of that passage out.
3: So that I think differently. Let me show
6: you what Pastor Warren's talking about. Come on over here, man. Uh,
1: all right, the power, so... Uh, the power of community, of congregation, congregation.
6: All working which, together. Which is uniquely what's important, I think, about the Daniel plan. It's All right, so
1: uh, they've walked over to a... Um, a it looks like basically a, an open fish tank but it's you know, like cut in half so they've walked over to what looks like an open fish tank and it's pretty long and there's water filled in maybe about six or eight inches of water inside of it and um and balloons balloons sitting on the top of the water a little pond we built here because these these these
6: Ponds that we make in our life, which represent in this case our brain, the mm-hmm. water tank, mm-hmm. are full of cravings, things we want to do, represented by these water balloons. So I've got my. So the balloons represent cravings, and the, the pond is your brain. Here, I'm not going to take advantage of them. You could baptize someone here, by the way.
3: <laughs> <Isn't> baptized-
6: <laughs> so so, we, so we, you take these cravings you got, and you try to push them down by yourself, and it is hard. I might get a couple down. I'm doing better than most people. You're missing this. Exactly. I've got all these all right. things. You try to do it, and nothing's going to happen. Yeah. It's hard to do, because when you're dieting on your own, you're hungry, and your willpower begins to sag. But if I spread out the wealth here, exactly. and ask my friends to chip in with me, exactly. all of a sudden, come on now and with- pull these, put them down together. All these things go away, your cravings are easier to conquer,
1: and they get squashed. Makes- yeah, an applause line now. Look, they're holding all the balloons underwater because community has come together to make it so that you can squash all your cravings.
6: It's easy to do whatever you want to do in life, including losing weight. Getting healthy is a team sport. That's what we found out. But that's why we talk sport. about doubling weight loss by doing it together.
3: That's, right. that's exactly right. It's worth the
6: investment. So if I can, I wanted to actually speak to someone who's been on the Daniel plan. I went out and visited with, with Rick. Yeah. Yep. I saw how magical it was. There's one of the women on the program who's visiting us. I get this towel. Her name is Chloe. Now, you're not going to know who Chloe is, but I want to show you a picture of Chloe from before the plan. Beautiful face, but you no, know, she's bigger than she probably wanted to be in life. Here's a picture of Chloe today. In fact, here is Chloe today.
1: Look, they have a testimonial now. They have results. See, faith plus community plus twisting the Book of Daniel produces weight loss results. How how many diet Planned books are there out there? I mean, serious. I mean, when you go to the bookstore, how many are there? Tons. And over the years, there have been all kinds of fad diets that come in and come out. It just sounds to me like the evangelical industrial complexes decided that they want their cut of the popular diet book market and have found a, a large megachurch pastor with a lot of clout who's willing to cut corners, twist God's Word, play fast and loose with the Bible so that they can come up with a spiritual alternative to all of those pagan, atheistic, non-community-based weight loss books out there so that uh, the, the Christian market can have its ears tickled and the evangelical industrial complex can have their pockets lined, if you know what I mean. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back. We're going to be reviewing a sermon from a church we've never reviewed a sermon before. It's time for Bad Christmas Sermon Week here at Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to
3: Fighting for the Faith.
1: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. <laughs> listening
2: to Byron Christian Radio.
1: The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the of cheapo airs already low prices write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs.
2: Yeah! (gasps) Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. Alright, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh... Yay, I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. (laughs) Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh,
5: thanks. Oh.
2: Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio
1: all right we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time I'm beginning to think that a sermon review from this church has been long overdue yeah it's bad sermon Christmas sermon week here at fighting for the faith and to kick off the week. Oh man, we got a doozer. Take bad movie sermon with bad message that isn't even christmas and you've got, oh man, a formula for disaster, but let's do this right. Here we go. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Southland Christian Church, which is a multi-site church with Campi in Nicholasville, Kentucky, Danville, Kentucky, and Lexington, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. The name of the sermon series is Netflixmas. <laughs> yes, that's right. Next Netflixmas. And the sermon is entitled Christmas Vacation. That's right. And you're familiar with the old Chevy Chase movie, Christmas Vacation. I don't think we're going to get a lot of that, though, in this um, sermon. It's preached by Dan Hamill, one of the teaching pastors there at Southland Christian Church, the multi-site uh, church. And um, what we're going to hear, well, let's just say, can you say Adventures in Missing the Point? Really heavy on the law super light on the gospel like practically non-existent yeah that's what we're dealing with here that's right so to kick off this week's worth of bad christmas sermons here we go let me go ahead and kill the music and without any further ado here is dan hamill and netflixmas christmas vacation here we go
0: Well, it is good to be here with everyone today. I sure hope you had a phenomenal Thanksgiving with your friends and your family. I know the last couple of days I have eaten a lot of food, I have watched a lot of football, and I've spent a lot of time with people. And my best guess is that you have as well. In fact, why don't we actually begin this morning, take a moment or two, turn to the person next to you at all of our campuses, and tell the person next to you what your favorite part of this Thanksgiving has been. Take a
1: moment. All right, so they're going to take a little bit of sermon time for people to share with each other what their famous favorite moment during Thanksgiving was, and this always is a weird and awkward way to begin a sermon. The question always comes up: How long should the pastor allow them to talk? Um, is this going to be a meaningful conversation?
0: Like no, nope. nope, not at all. Day. Better it said turkey, and always, that's it. You know, uh, a great time of the year. When you ask most people, "Hey, what was the favorite part of your of your holiday?" they typically say, "You know, well, I suppose spending all the time with family." The strange thing is, when you ask people, "Hey, what was what was the worst part about uh, worst part about your holiday?" they typically say, "Well, spending all that time with family, right?" Now, I moved to Lexington about five and a half years ago, and when I moved, here, I didn't have any family. In fact, uh, I didn't know anyone in all of Kentucky. Uh, the beautiful thing about this church, though, the wonderful thing about Southland is that Southland became like a family to me. In fact, there is this, uh, this one lady in our church who opened up her home for me to come and live with her. This gal's name is Sue. She has a beautiful house right across uh, the street from our Heritage Row campus. And she, this, this gal is a widow now, but she's been coming to our church for more than 55 years. And when she found out that our church had a new pastor and this guy didn't have any family, she said, Hey, open up my house and he can come and live with me. He can become a part of my family. And so I was so grateful for that opportunity. I lived there for quite a while until I get kind of established and get kind of situated here in Lexington and became very good friends with Sue. I'd have some friends after the first few months of being here. My friends from Missouri would call me up, and they'd say, Hey, Dan, how do you like Lexington? Hey, Dan, how do you like Southland? How do you like your job? And then they'd ask me the real question that they called about. Have you met any ladies in Lexington? Right? And I'd always, you know be a little dismissive at first. And then I'd say, oh, there's this one lady I've met. She's a a little bit older than me. But she's got a lot of money. And then I'd tell them that we decided to move in together. And occasionally, occasionally I'd tell them the rest of the story. Uh, One evening, Sue and I were out to eat, and we decided to go to Qdoba. Now, before you, before you think, you know less of me, before you make any judgments, if, if uh, Chipotle was closer, we would have gone to Chipotle, all right? But we were on the south side of town, no Chipotle, so we're at q We're standing in line.
1: So already we're off to a bad start. Apparently the, the opening portion of whatever a sermon is at a seeker-driven megachurch of course, supported, funded, and uh, made popular by the Evangelical Industrial Complex. Uh, the first portion is a stand-up comedy routine. Dan's delivery, you know, his comedic timing is okay, uh, but his job is to preach the
0: word. Uh, haven't gotten there yet. Let's see what happens. Says, hey, Dan, I want to order my burrito the way that you order your burrito. How do I do that? Now, I knew what she meant. She was talking about getting it in a burrito bowl, okay, not in the tortilla shell. I said, that's easy, Sue. Just tell them you want your burrito to be naked. And uh, she was uncomfortable with that. <laughs> and when it was uh, her turn to order, she got up to the counter. Uh, she leaned over, and she said, I want my burrito to be undressed. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, I will be, I'll be forever grateful for Sue and for her, her kids and for her grandkids, and for her neighbors, because when I was new to town, they made me feel like I was a part of their family. And everyone wants to feel like they're a part of a family, don't they? I mean, just look at the entertainment that, that was on our TVs these days. You have people who are keeping up with the Kardashian family, and people who are tuning in to watch Modern Family. Yeah, Neither family would I want to be a part of. Um, okay wants to follow the Duggar family and the dynasty family. There are even people who are watching Hulk Hogan's family on reality TV. Hulk Hogan's family. There's just just something special, something captivating, something alluring about family. And here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about Jesus' family. See, when you flip through the Gospels... You want to do what? (laughs) Oh, man. This is a
1: Christmas... Sermon based upon the movie Christmas Vacation from the net Netflixmas sermon series? You're going to talk about Jesus' family in this context. Oh, boy, do I feel a Bible twisting coming on. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're going to be listening to some, uh, what, how do, how's the new phrase go? We're going to be hearing some textual harassment going on in this sermon.
0: Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these accounts of Jesus's life. There's a number of occasions where Jesus's family shows up and Jesus interacts with his relatives. And what I want to do today is just flip through some of those passages and see what we can't glean from them, what we can't take away from them, and put into practice in our own families as holiday season.
1: So we're going to find relevant family survival uh, thriving principles from from these stories, you are going to tell us. Oh boy,
0: the plan. So let's begin with the first observation that stands out to me most. Okay, first observation is that Jesus came from an imperfect family. Jesus came from an imperfect family, and guys, this is something you see. Yeah, um,
1: Jesus's genealogy is in Matthew chapter one, and there, are, uh, every single one of those folks in there, they all be sinners. So yeah, that's true even the great um the great patriarchs you know who were who had faith in the coming messiah jesus um even they were all racked with sin so yeah every human being is born into a quote imperfect family and by the way perfection implies a standard and the standard then would be what Perfection and that would be sinlessness. So why is it that Jesus comes from an imperfect family? And how is it that he's perfect where everybody that he's descended from isn't? See, if you're going to go this direction, actually open up your Bible and dig deep into the theological implications here regarding
0: original sin and what happened in the Garden of Eden and things like that. On the very first page of the New Testament, you open up your Bible, to Matthew chapter 1, and we have a record of, of Jesus' ancestors. We have his lineage, his family tree. And let's, uh, let's read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 1. We'll start, we'll start in verse 1. Here's a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And the list continues to go on and on. That list continues for forty-two generations. And of course, you know there are a lot of interesting historical facts that we could point out about the type of people who are who are on this list. There's a lot of really fascinating things we could we could point out.
1: Yeah, they're all sinners. I mean, you know that Tamar actually. Um, well, how should I, how how do I put this delicately? She hooked up with Judah. Um, in an act of prostitution, and Judah was her father-in-law. Yeah, um, so we got that really interesting thing, and then you know, we go all the way down to Rahab, Rahab the uh, the the prostitute who survived. Um, you know, uh, Jericho. She lived in Jericho. She was a prostitute in Jericho, and she's grafted in. She's like the great grandmother of uh, King David, and then you got David himself. I mean, you have the whole. Uh, adultery with Bathsheba, murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. I mean, then we could talk about Solomon and how many, how many wives did he have? I mean, he makes the Mormons look like upstarts. Um, but every single person in Jesus' genealogy is a sinner.
0: What stands out to me most are the, the genre of people, the type of people who are in Jesus' family tree. I mean, one look at this list, and you realize that Jesus did not come from the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability. There are murderers in Jesus' family tree. There are liars and cowards and cheaters in Jesus' family tree. I mean, you look at this list, and you realize... And there's rank idolaters in Jesus' family tree. What's your point? of of, of the people that Jesus is related to. There are prostitutes and there are polygamists. There are adulterers and there are idolaters. There is even incest in Jesus' family tree. Now, now every family has a rogue black sheep or two. Every family has a crazy cousin Eddie or two. But the waywardness and the dysfunction of Jesus' family is almost unparalleled. No,
1: actually, it's not that it's unparalleled. That's all of us. Every single one of us has a family tree that's as bad and spotted as Jesus's family tree because we all go back to the same parents, Adam and Eve.
0: There's a lot of skeletons in Jesus's family closet. There's a lot of baggage for Jesus' family to carry around. He comes from a very imperfect family. And yet, and yet it was still through this imperfect family that God sent his son into the world.
1: Actually, it's for his imperfect family and my imperfect family and your imperfect family. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came for them to bear the punishment of all of their sins on the cross. That's why he came. That's why we need a
0: Savior. That's what the Messiah is all about. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that you don 't have to have a perfect family for God to use your family really you don 't have
1: to have a perfect family for God to use your family that 's the best you can come up with. How about god i mean what is, by the way, what is the deal with evangelicalism 's obsession with God using you? Um, it, it, it's, I'm beginning to think that they think of it in terms like a a sacramental terms, you know, it's like, well, how do I know that God loves me? How do I know I'm saved? Well, um, oh, he's using me. Therefore that proves that I'm saved. I think that's what they're doing here, man. Um, are we going to talk about the fact that everybody needs the savior? And that Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he lives a sinless life for us so that we can be forgiven. Is, are you going to get there?
0: You don't have to have a perfect family for God to use your family. Isn't, it, isn't that good news for us? Because no matter how. No, the good news is that Christ died for our sins. What is this? Things might seem or appear on the surface. Nobody, not a single person here today, has or comes from a perfect family. I grew up one of five children. I have three older
1: sisters. I'm the... F- Why do I feel like this next section of the sermon is going to be family
0: group therapy for Pastor Dan? In line, and then I have a younger brother. So seven people total in my family. Three older sisters... One bathroom. One bathroom. Sometimes people ask me, Hey, Dan, how did, how did you become so patient? And I just roll my eyes and I say, You have no idea, right? No idea. Now, I love my family. And I love my family a lot. But- and, and this is a
1: Christmas sermon? Netflixmas. Who's he preaching about? Himself. Are we hearing anything About the virgin-born son of God? Well, except for the part, well, he comes from an imperfect family.
0: Not a perfect family. Because of a number of things that happened in my family when I was growing up, my parents separated a number of times. My dad would move out of the house, move back in, move out of the house, move back in. And that happened quite a few times. I don't think I need to tell anyone how difficult of a thing that is to experience during your elementary and middle school years. And not only did not only did the instability of my family result in deep insecurity in my own life, but it impacted my siblings as well. I have a sister who's had a couple children without being married. My younger brother does not believe in Jesus. And by the time I finished college, my parents decided to divorce, and they've called it quits for good. And those things, I mean, they break my heart. And I know whatever wounds or hurt or brokenness there is in your family, I and mean, I know those things break your heart too. I mean, these are the things that keep us up at night. These are the things that cause us to shed so many tears. When the people in our own
1: family, when the people we love the most... And all of that is a result of our collective sinful condition as a result of us being direct descendants of Adam and Eve, born dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, hating God, hating others. That's a result of sin. I mean, broken families and that type of tragedy that you're hearing Dan talk about, the, the tragedy that occurred in his own life, is a result of sin. And this is why we need a Savior.
0: ...are hurting the most. But that's the common story of us, of us all. No one comes from a perfect family. I remember vividly four years ago at Christmas. I had just bought a house and I would moved in there and I had three roommates at the time. So there's four of us guys and on Christmas night we were all around the table sharing a Christmas meal. And we just took turns and we started sharing stories of what our Christmas traditions were when we were growing up. And by the time the last person shared his story, it hit us all for the first time. Not a single one of us came from a family that was still together. All of us in that house came from broken homes. So after dinner, we got up from the dining room. We went into the family room. And we got on our knees. And we prayed for our families. We prayed for God to heal our families. We prayed for God to do a miracle in our families. And after praying for our families, we prayed for each other. We prayed for God to heal us. We pray for God to do a miracle in our lives. We pray for God to one day give us the strength and the character to write a different story when we start our own families one day. And guys, I'm telling you, God is so faithful. Even now, even now, God is answering many of those prayers. You know, one of the things I'm learning these days is that with God's help, no matter what your family legacy is today, one generation can make all the difference.
1: Okay, so with God's help, no matter what your family legacy is today, one generation can make all the difference. Nope. This is not going to be a good point. And here's the reason why. is because even if you are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, um, you're still a sinner. You still have your sinful nature to deal with. The sanctification process is arduous, difficult, and involves a lot of suffering. And um, if you have children, they are going to suffer along with you as you are being sanctified by Christ, oftentimes through the um, difficulty that comes through raising children. And your children, when they are born, they they will be born dead in trespasses and sins. Even in Christian families, even in Christian families, you still have an entire generation of sinners. Yep. The one the one person that made all the difference in the whole world is the one man who lived the sinless life and that's Jesus Christ, and it's his birth that we celebrate and remember during the Christmas season, not our families, but Christ who adopts us through through his shed blood on the cross, into the family of God, were redeemed, were taken off the slave block and adopted into God's family. Oh, please, Dan, please get to that.
0: Isn't that good news? No matter what your family legacy was that you inherited, no matter what it is today, with God's help, with God's presence, with God's power, one generation can make all the difference.
1: Isn't that, quote, good news? No, it's not. And the fact that the generations that preceded the last two were far more godly than ours proves your thesis to be wrong. America's not getting more righteous, it's getting less. Especially as the church isn't doing its job in proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name.
0: You look at Jesus' life and you see that. One generation changed everything. Not just for Jesus' family, but for every family. And the same can be true in your life. The same can be true in your family. In your- How?
1: What, I mean, what is the parallel between my family and Jesus'
0: family? And that's the first thing that stands out to me about Jesus' family. He came from an imperfect family. The second thing that stands out to me is that Jesus included people in his family. He included people in his family. And I get this from Matthew chapter 12. So move from chapter 1, fast forward to chapter 12. We're now a little we So we're, we're, it doesn't matter what what's in between these tiny
1: little snippets that he's taking out of context. I'm going to skip over all of that so we can make a bigger point, a deeper theological point. Jesus included people in his family. Yes, he does. He adopts us into God's family through his shed blood. Will we hear about the shed blood? Will we hear about repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Into
0: a year of Jesus' public ministry. And we'll read this in chapter 12, verse 46. It says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Well, so someone told Jesus, Well, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Then pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, which begs the question, what does it mean to do the will of
1: his Father? Hmm? What must we do to be doing the works of God was the question that was posed to Jesus um, in the Gospel of John. What was Jesus' answer to the question? What does it mean to be doing the works of God? Well, Let's take a look. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. Here's what it reads. So they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what it means to do the work of God. That is what it means to do the will of God, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when you have faith, true faith in Christ, you can't help but do good works. They proceed and and come out as a result of your faith. So the work of God, Ton Ergon, the singular work, is to believe in him who the Father has sent. Let's see what he does with it. Let's see what Dan does. Here we go.
0: Now, once again, of course, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we could say about this passage. But what stands out to me most is that Jesus was willing to expand the genetic confines of his family to include other people. He looked at his disciples and he said, here are my brothers. Then he says, anyone who has faith in my father is in my family. Jesus included people in his family. Right,
1: right. What's it mean to have faith?
0: And because of that, because of that, I truly believe that one of the most Christ-like things you can do this holiday season is include people in your family.
1: Oh, man. So this is all just to serve some kind of um, an example that you're supposed to follow. Law, not
0: gospel. One of the most Christ-like things you can do this holiday season is include people in your family. I don't know who that might be. That could be a neighbor down the street, or it could be a co-worker from your office. Maybe an international student down on UK's campus, or maybe someone from this church. could be someone from a nursing home. I mean, I don't know. Anyone who... Just expand your family.
1: Pick some random person and and include them as part of your family.
0: Have a lot of family in the area. Anyone who might feel lonely. Anyone who doesn't feel like he has a place or she has a place to belong. Why not open up your home and say, this Christmas, you can be a part of my family. Just a few days ago for Thanksgiving, I was over at a family's house from our church. And not just for the holidays, but, uh, but every week they invite me over to their house and they make me feel like I'm a part of their family. But it's not just something they do for me. I mean, every week when I come over, they remind me, hey, anyone else you know? Who doesn't have family in the area. Anyone else you know who might need a meal. Anyone else you know who just needs to be loved. Bring them over with you. Let them feel included. And I think to myself. That's the very thing that Jesus would do. Jesus would always, always be including people in his family. Just a couple weeks ago. I stopped over at their house on a Monday night. Someone unannounced. I called them as I was driving down Harrodsburg Road. And I said, hey, I don't have dinner plans. Can I just stop in and join you? They said, yeah, come on over. And I stayed longer than expected. The kids had already gone to bed, maybe at 10.30. And it was maybe 11.30 or 12 at this point. And we're just in the living room having a a great conversation. And I realized sometime, like I said, 11.30 or 12. It was just the husband and the wife and then me in the living room. I realized about, about midnight, the husband took a look at his wife and realized that he was not in her periphery. She was just telling me a story, not paying attention. So he reached down to his sock. And he snapped off one of those elastic strings from his sock. Checked one more time to make sure that his wife wasn't looking. And then he started flossing his teeth with that sock string, right? And I, thought, and I thought to myself, that's how you know your family, right? When people will start flossing their teeth with elastic sock strings right in front of you. Who, who is it? Who is it in, in your life? Think of a name or two or three. Who is it that might need to be included in your family? This holiday season. What if... What if everyone in our church had this vision? No... What if...
1: What if... if, This isn't... This is not exegetical preaching. This is just bludgeoning you with law disguised as vision.
0: ...people in Lexington. No lonely people in Nicholasville or Danville. No lonely people in central Kentucky... What if we had that? How about
1: no biblically illiterate mega church goers in Central Kentucky? How about that one? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good goal. What if what if we can get all of the megachurch attenders and uh, at the multi sites for Southland uh, Christian Church to actually be biblically literate, so they would know that they're being schnookered by bad preaching that takes verses out of context and being bludgeoned with God's law rather than hearing both law and gospel. How about that? What What if? What
0: if? Because we had this resolve. Jesus included us in his family. So we will include others in ours. Is that a bumper sticker that you saw
1: somewhere? Because I don't recall a Bible verse that says, Jesus included us in his family so we can include others in ours. Now, granted, that might be a thing that we we do in loving our neighbors. Uh, that, that might actually be the right thing to do to love our neighbor in a particular situation. But, I mean, can you please give me an actual passage in context and preach the good news to me, not this other news that you think sounds good, so that, oh, you know,
0: That's one of the things that stands out to me about Jesus' interaction with his family. Came from an imperfect family, included people in his family. Another thing that stands out to me is that Jesus provided for his family. Jesus provided for his family. Now I get this from the last few moments of Jesus' life. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's giving his life for the salvation of the world...
1: Yeah, boy, this is getting dangerously close to being a gospel nugget. So he's giving his life for the salvation of the world. Can you expound on that? Okay, because you you just mentioned it. You need to actually kind of flesh that out.
0: He looks down and he locks eyes with his mom. Now, I want you to try to place yourself in the emotion of that moment. I mean, mothers or sons in the room, think about your last few moments on earth together. And that's the scene that we come across in John chapter 19. And we read, we read about it starting in verse 26. It says, When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, the one who writes this account, Jesus said to her, Woman, here is your son. And then to the disciple here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home.
1: Yeah, nope, we're not going to hear about that salvation thing that Jesus was doing on the cross. We're just going to, f- here's an example for you to follow. You know, Jesus provided for his family, you need to provide for yours too. What was Jesus doing when
0: he said that? Yeah, he was, you know, dying for the sins of the world, but we don't need to talk about that. That's not important. And the implication is that he would provide for her, make sure she had a place to stay, make sure that she had food to eat. See, even in the last few moments of Jesus' life, he made sure that his mom was provided for. He took care of his family. One of the most important things we can ever do is take care of our families. It's something that Jesus does, and it's something that he calls us to do. Jesus
1: walked on water, too. I'm not supposed to do that now, am I? I mean, I understand that, you know, we listen, we've got a commandment here. Honor your father and mother. It's it's actually found in the Ten Commandments. You familiar with it? Jesus is actually still even on the cross while he's dying for the sins of the world, still sinless and obeying the will of God and obeying the commandments to honor your father and mother. Can you put it in that context? It might help because then we can identify it as law and also understand that if we're falling short of it, it's sin, and that what Christ was doing on the cross then is for the forgiveness of that sin so that we can be brought to repentance and be contrite and sorrowful for falling short and call upon God to forgive us. Here we're just getting some kind of disconnected life principle that he thinks he sees in here without it actually being connected properly to the full counsel of the Word of God so we understand it rightly.
0: Times when we think about provision, we think in terms of financial provision, we make sure that our family has enough stuff And we're just a couple days off of Black Friday, like the one day of the year where we will spend more money buying stuff for our family than any other day of the year. But biblically speaking, provision is so much more encompassing than just financial. It includes emotional attentiveness. It includes spiritual leadership. Provision is holistic. Just a couple of weeks ago, I met a friend a little little south of here. So here we go again, another life story from the life of Dan. Nicholasville, actually. And we decided to take a fishing trip to Barron River Lake. So we met up a little before 6 a.m., and we drove a couple hours down to the lake to go fishing. And on the way down there, we were having a, a really engaging conversation. But right in the middle of it, he interrupted it to make a phone call. Not a big deal, but he called his mom. They talked for about 10 minutes or so. And, and, of course, I could only hear his side of the conversation, but it didn't sound like anything of particular importance was being discussed. So I was a little confused as to why the interruption. He hung up the phone eventually, and then he apologized. He said, hey, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I, I apologize for that. But he said, uh, I call my mom, I call my mom every, every morning on my way into work, and I did not want to miss her today. I said, "Man, that's, that's no problem. I said, is that something that you've, you've always done? He said, no, it's not. But you know, Dad passed away about, uh, about a year and a half ago. And ever since then, it's just been something I've wanted to do. And I thought to myself, that has got to be the godliest way my friend could have ever spent ten minutes of his morning. See, he wasn't just calling to say hi. He was providing for his mom.
1: Yeah, he was obeying the commandment to honor your father and mother. I agree. That's a good work. (sighs) But all we're getting here is laws and principles to apply without any good news. And Christmas is all about the good news of the Savior being born for us to save us from our sins. And all of this is just bludgeoning with the law and showing us how we all don't stack up. And you're thinking, man, uh, man, I, I need to do better. Yeah, you, you, well, you're getting a heavy dose of the law. But see, the solution when you fall short is not for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but to get on your knees and ask God to be merciful and forgive you, and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And that requires you to preach the cross. We're not even getting close to that yet. We Well, funny enough, the cross was mentioned, but... The whole saving of, you know, dying for the sins of the world thing, that was kind of a side note, you know. The real thing he wanted to key in on was, you know, him providing for his mom. Oi.
0: Jesus took care of his family. And he wants us to take care of our families, too. That's something you see all throughout Scripture. But perhaps one of the clearest verses that teaches us this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Where the Apostle Paul writes and says, anyone who does not provide for his relatives, and once again, think about providing and provision being encompassing and holistic. Anyone who does not provide for his relatives, especially his immediate family, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, that is is a strong statement. But it really teaches us that if we desire to honor and please God, if we desire to honor and please God, one of the most important things we could ever do is love and serve our families.
1: Again, notice he goes to that Timothy passage. You know, the person who doesn't care for his family is basically abandon the faith. Right. Why? Because that's rank sin. It's impenitent sin. There's commandments that make it clear that it is God's will for us to honor our father and mother and care for them. And the solution to sin is the forgiveness of sins. It's the gospel. We're not hearing that. We're just hearing, get to it, get busy,
0: get active. This I fully recognize that loving your family is not the most exciting ministry you could ever be called to. But it is likely the most important ministry you could ever be called to. I recognize that going to Haiti or going to Africa and working in an orphanage or building some house overseas is really exciting and it's an important thing to do if we have the opportunity. Guys, but 99 times out of 100, it is what you do within the four walls of your house that will make the greatest eternal impact. And I just wonder what would happen. And I agree, this goes
1: right to the vocation of father and mother and how God has set up father and mother. He's the one who's created that. Right, right. And when you fall short of it, you need to repent. It's sinful if you are not being a good father or a good mother. If you're being inattentive with your children,
0: that is a sin. You need to repent and be forgiven. Every person in our church, if all 12 or 13 or 14,000 people who attend this church on a weekly basis said, you know, I, I will make my family my number one ministry and my spouse will see Jesus in me. My kids will see Jesus in me. I will love my parents no matter how old or how young I am. I will love my siblings. I will sacrificially serve my family. My family will see Jesus in me. If every person in our church had that resolve, had that commitment, we would change the cultural and spiritual climate of central Kentucky almost. Yeah, and that's not going to happen by preaching the
1: law. That comes about as a result of preaching the gospel. <sighs> law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You think somebody's just going to be able to pull themselves up by their sinful bootstraps and all of a sudden say, oh, they're going to see Jesus in me just because I've made a decision to do so? No, not at all. This is a formula for basically breaking promises and, and committing to things that you can't commit to, that you're incapable of executing on. You need to be sanctified through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which requires you to sit under good preaching, that you that God, the Holy Spirit, then transforms us from the inside
0: out. Oy. Overnight. What if we decided to be like Jesus and provide for our families in practical, tangible, holistic ways? I think one of the most Christ-like things we can do, not just include people in our families, but provide for our families. So couple observations so far. Jesus comes from an imperfect family, includes people in his family. He provides for his family. And then the the last observation that jumps out to me, and this is probably the most challenging of all of them, is that Jesus subordinated the importance of family. He subordinated the importance of family. Now, at first, like I said, it's not just challenging. It might seem a little confusing, especially in line of what we just talked about, about the, the biblical injunction to provide for our families. But if you stick with me for just a moment, I think it'll make sense. Take a look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. Once again, we're now a little more than two years into Jesus' ministry. A lot of people are following him. A lot of people are coming to see his miracles or to hear his teaching, but they're not really committed to him. And this is the scene that we come across Luke 14, verses 25 and 26. says, there are large crowds that were traveling with Jesus. And then turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Most scholars will tell you this is perhaps one of the most challenging things that Jesus will ever say. What do you mean I'm supposed to hate my family? I thought I was supposed to be providing for my family. And Jesus now is like, I've got to, got to hate my family. I think about my own family. I think about my mom and how much I love my mom. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was able to lead a, lead a trip from our church to the Holy Land. We took 35 people. We went to Israel. We went to Greece. We went to Rome. We had an incredible time. And luckily enough, my mom was able to come with me on this trip. Here's a picture, actually, of my mom and I from Athens. We were at the base of the Acropolis where the Parthenon stands, and we had an incredible time on this trip. And I really hope that some of you are able to join us for the next trip that we're going to take in September of next year. But here's what stands out to me. All along this trip, all 16 days of it, it's like a different person came up to me every day and said, you know, your mom might actually be like the nicest person in the world. And I was like, yeah, I know who she is. So what do you mean I'm supposed to hate my mom? It's not just challenging. It seems confusing. It seems a little convoluted. But here's how I've at least come to understand that. I think that we are being challenged. We are are called to love Jesus so much that the love we have for him makes the love we have for the most important people in our lives seem like hate hate. In comparison. Does that make sense? And we were to be so committed, so devoted to Jesus, that the commitment and the devotion that we have...
1: Again, all law here. Man.
0: What are you... To, I, I don't even know how to straighten this out. ...makes the commitment and devotion we have for everything and everyone else in our lives seem like it's just outright neglect. It's like Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, hey, You've always heard, you've always thought that your family is supposed to be the ultimate priority in your life. But you're wrong. Your family is not supposed to be your ultimate priority. I am. Don't revolve and center your life around your family. Revolve and center your life around me. Now here's how I understand this at at a visual level. Oftentimes, when we think about the most important things in our lives, our commitments, our priorities, we oftentimes have a list like this. And we have our spouse, we have our kids, parents, siblings, job. And, of course, this list will ebb and flow based upon the season of life that you're in. And we can always add, you know, more things to it. We can add, you know, UK sports because, you know, we are here in Kentucky. And that's a big thing for me. I mean, honestly, I would would have to add Dr. Pepper. It's a definite commitment in my life. And if you've had these 23 incredible flavors, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And if you've ever had the knockoff Mr. Pibb, you know just how good purity is. <laughs> but oftentimes, this is a, you know, a priority list. When Jesus is added to someone's life, when Jesus enters the equation, the assumption is... All these things just move down a little bit. And then we fit Jesus... In here, at the top. So Jesus is at the top of my priority list. and I, Really?
1: That's, so you just need to make a priority list and just put, stick Jesus right at the top
0: there. You They know? say that this, this list is inherently bad or it's, it's entirely faulty. But I don't think that this really gets at what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 14.
1: Okay, so what was he talking
0: about? I think instead of having Jesus at the top of our list, what we're really being called to is to have Jesus at the center of our lives. And then with Jesus at the center, we love our spouse. Okay, let's just go with your metaphor. Okay, so
1: rather than having him be at the top of a priority list, you make him the center of your life. Um, So then you attend a church where Jesus isn't the center of the preaching, but you are. How long is that going to work?
0: With Jesus at the center, we love our kids. With Jesus at the center, we enjoy our hobbies and we work diligently at our jobs. Everything becomes about Jesus. And it's with Jesus at the center that our lives make sense. He's not just at the top of our lives, of our list. He's at the center of our lives. This is what theologians call being Christocentric. Everything is about Jesus. And you know Yeah, and the weird
1: thing is is that this sermon isn't Christocentric. Nope. It's the exact opposite. It's anthropocentric. It's man-centered.
0: Paradoxical or the counterintuitive part of all of this. It's that The best way to love your family is to love Jesus more than your family. You put your family at the very center, you make your family an idol, and you can never love your family the way they really need. What your family needs most, hear me on this, what your family needs most right now is for you to love Jesus more than everything else, for you to center your life around him.
1: All right, let's take a look at that Luke 14 passage. Let's add a little bit of context. The three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, context. Let's take a look at the context here. We're going to go back to Luke 14, verse 15, to see if it sheds some light on what's going on. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once had a great banquet and invited many. And at that at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, Oh, I've I bought a field and I gotta go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Really you, you, you you're gonna not go to the party because you just bought five yoke of oxen, uh huh. And another said, Oh, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Yeah, because no one ever takes their wife out in public. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hmm? Right. Now we get what's going on. When you put this in context, I mean, all these people who are making excuses about coming to the banquet, that comes into play. Unfortunately, Dan hasn't read this passage in context. As a result of it, he's taking a stab at an interpretation in the dark. And the light, all he had to do to flip the light switch on would be to read and preach the passage in context.
0: But he's not doing that. When I think about centering my life around Jesus, I think about my friend, Veer. Veer is a man who grew up in India where he was an orphan. Here's a picture of Veer and I that was taken just a few weeks ago. Veer grew up an orphan in India. He had a very, um, a very lucrative career path set before him. But he decided to forego that career path so he could go into Bible college and train to be a pastor. After his junior year of Bible college, he and some classmates, a, a large group of them, were on his bus ride. And they were going around the region showing the gospel to people who had not yet heard it. They stopped their bus to fill up with gas. And the students got out. They started sharing their faith with people who were there at the gas station. And as they did, there was a group of Hindu extremists who found out what was going on. They came. They took rocks. They curled them at the bus. They shattered every window of the bus. And then they started attacking the students. The men and the women. They assaulted these students. They beat them up really bad. Luckily, no one was killed. They all made it out safely. But before... Veer left before Veer left that town a town of about 300,000 people he felt God say to him you are to come back to this place come back to the city and plant a church he returned to school he finished his last year after he finished he was given this incredible job opportunity where he would have overseen a number of ministries like a grade school an orphanage he would have overseen the college he just graduated from this is a guy with incredible capacity they saw so much potential in him But he passed up that opportunity. He says, I've got to go back to the city. I have to obey God. I have to go plant this church. So he went back. And when he got to that town, it's like door after door after door. is just slammed in his face. But he's finally able to start a church. And after planting a church, he started an orphanage. And after that orphanage, he started a school. A school that now has 492 students in it. A couple years ago, Veer was in his office at school. And a group of 40 men, Hindu extremists, broke into his office. And they said, if you don't shut down your church and your school and your orphanage, if you don't stop preaching in the name of Jesus, we will come back here tomorrow. We will take you to the city square and we will burn you alive. And as is telling me the story, he said, I, I, I wanted to be courageous, but I'm, I'm only human. And I was, I was afraid went home that night, told my wife what had happened, and I said, we might have to leave. He said, I know what it was like to grow up without a dad, and I'm not willing to put my children through that. He said, my, my, my wife responded to me with more passion, with more conviction than I'd ever heard in her before. She said, Veer, God will provide for our kids, and I will see you in heaven. You must be faithful to Jesus. So Vera went back the next day to be faithful to Jesus. Unbeknownst to him, there were now three armed guards waiting for him there at the school. The community heard what was going on, and they were unwilling to lose this man because of all the help and all the good that he had done in their city. So he's been protected ever since. Here's a guy who was tempted to to prioritize his family above all else. Then he heard a word from God and he said, no, 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 no. Prioritize me above all else and let the rest fall into place. It it could be easy to hear a story like Veers and say, well, okay, well, that's kind of extreme. That's over there in India. But no, I mean, think about your own life, your own context, your own world. How can you make Jesus the center of everything and then trust God for the rest? Doesn't it start by hearing Christocentric
1: sermons, which this is not? We've heard way more about Dan and his friends and other people than we've heard about Jesus, except for Jesus set a good example for us to follow, to fall into place.
0: Jesus subordinated the importance of family so that he could be very first in our lives. You know, as I was writing this message, uh, no,
1: Jesus' active and passive obedience was for our salvation.
0: Elders from our church came into my office, somewhat unannounced, and he just sat down and he said, "Hey, Dan, how can I help you today?" And I love working at a place where elders just stop by to say, "How, how can I help you?" I said, hey, if you want to help me, you can finish my sermon for me, right? And he said, I'm not qualified for that. And whether he's right or wrong, I don't know. But we talked for a few moments. He left. And the next morning, I got an email from him. And I want to conclude this message by just reading the email that one of our elders sent me.
1: Now, here's my question before he reads this email. Will we, at the end of the sermon, have more content from this email than biblical content preached throughout the entirety of the sermon. Think about it. I mean, he's going to read an entire email. And how many verses have we received so far in this sermon? I'm up to what? Five? Six, maybe?
0: Um, let's see. He said, ever since we talked yesterday, I can't get this message off my mind. I can't stop praying about it. He says, I pray for the husband or the father. Who's left his home, that he would realize that he's in the wrong, that he would humbly ask for forgiveness, that he'd return to his family. I pray that any person involved in an affair right now would hear God's voice through your words and decide today to turn away from their sin and turn back to God, turn back to their spouse.
1: Okay, now this is interesting. Okay. The email emailer... The guy who's, quote, not qualified to end the sermon, he understands something here of law and gospel. I'm glad it's getting thrown in at the end, because whoever wrote this email understands the need for repentance and forgiveness. I'm glad he's included this at the end. But again, we've heard far more already from this email than we have from
0: God's word. I pray the parent who just lost their child due to drugs or abuse can find hope. I pray that unmarried people who are living together can understand God's desire for them and God's design for them, which is so much better than what they are currently experiencing. I pray that the stepfather or stepmother, for them to have strength to patiently lead their family and to encourage their kids. I pray for children to seek God's God's own heart. And to honor their parents at all times. I pray for folks who are thinking about adopting. That they would understand that God put that desire in their heart. And to just step out in faith. I pray that grandparents could model a godly life. That they can stop some of the destructive things that they're doing. And instead invest into their kids and their grandkids. I pray for teachers and mentors to help out kids. Who are at risk or who just need someone in their life to encourage them. The list could go on and on, but I'll stop there for now. No matter where you're at today, no matter what family you have, whether your family is almost perfect, whether your family is kind of mediocre right there in the middle, whether your family is really messed up. No matter where you're at today with your family, you have been prayed for. And more important than just being prayed for, no matter where you're at with your family today... Jesus has invited you. He is inviting you to be a part of his family.
1: Okay, will we get to the part where they not only have been prayed for, but they have been bled and died for. Again, this is supposedly a Christmas-ish sermon. Are we going to hear about the virgin-born son of God who saves his people from their sins? In fact, he died. Oh, oh, good. Whew. Woo! We're finally getting to the gospel. Okay, so he died. What he died
0: for? So that you could be included in it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um. Boy, I'm feeling like you know I'm in the Christmas spirit here, so I'm going to go ahead and and grant that that's a gospel nugget, but it's yeah, barely that. So there you go. Jesus died so that you could be part of his family. Um, great. Um. Can you expound on that? I mean, I understand we're like right at the very, 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 very end of this sermon. It would have been nice if you'd made the gospel like a major point in your sermon rather than like an afterthought as you're getting ready to
0: finish. It says in the gospel of John, chapter 1, Yet to all who received him, to all those who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Correct.
1: Good. Yes, this is true. So let's hear the call to repentance, to be forgiven, to believe in the Son of God.
0: Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you would like to be born again, if you would like to be born of God and be included into Jesus' family, we'd love to help you make that decision today. I have got to
1: back this up. (laughs) Were you not, Dan, were you not paying attention to the verse that you read? Let me back this up and I'm going to pay, I want you to just pay close attention to the words here. Okay. Because he's reading this text and the
0: text actually says the exact opposite of what he said. Watch this. To all who received him, to all those who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or— okay, did you hear that?
1: Children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The text says, not born of a human decision or human will. Okay, So the text he's reading says you cannot be born again by a human decision. Watch what he does, then.
0: but born of God. If you would like to be born again, if you would like to be born of God and be included into Jesus's family, we'd love to help you make that decision today.
1: Yet the text you just read says you're not born of a human decision. Again, um, why is it there are so many secret driven megachurch pastors who have failed basic reading comprehension? This is unbelievable. I mean, he's basically giving a Pelagian altar call after reading the text that dis- destroys Pelagianism. Man. Let's pray. Done. Oh, man, this is just... Hey, at least we got a gospel nugget. That's so much better. No, it's not. That was just a bludgeoning with the law with a gospel footnote at the end. And, and and the text he says, not born of a human decision, then turn around when you want to be born again. We're going to help you make that decision. Talk about convoluted. What has happened to the pulpits of America? This is an absolute crime. Folks, if you attend a church like this, and this is the steady diet of preaching that you're getting, flee the building quickly and don't ever go back go find a pastor who will rightly preach Christ who will who actually knows how to preach a Christocentric sermon who will tell you of what Jesus has done for you confront you with your sins through God's law call it what it is call you to repent call you to be forgiven call you to trust in Jesus and constantly assure you that what Jesus has done is enough and constantly points you back to him, back to him, back to him, and gets your eyes off of you. Who actually understands the difference between the Pelagian heresy and biblical monergism. And when a monergistic text is, is read or preached, will actually teach you what the monergistic text says, not ignore what it says, and then turn around and teach the exact opposite, like Dan did. <sighs> wow, that was painful.